Thanks, Jean, very much. Um, please keep uh, Genesis chapter 27 open in front of you. And uh, let's pray together. Dear Lord, we pray that your word would be to us this morning uh, sweeter than honey and more precious than gold, and that it would give us life, spiritual life, as we follow Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. What an absolute mess. <laughs> it is a totally messed up soap opera in a totally messed up family. Father, mother and two sons. And did you notice, no more than two of them can bear to be in the same scene at the same time. But the greatest travesty of all in this tragic chapter is that these are God's people. And this is the story of God's blessing. See, God's plan to bless the world through Abraham's family is the thread that holds the whole book of Genesis together. And ultimately, the thread leads to Jesus Christ. But here are four members of Abraham's family doing their very best to unravel it. And they plot, they lie, they beg, all to get their hands on God's blessing their way rather than God's way. And the results are nearly disastrous. And they may still prove disastrous today if we relive their mistakes, which we are liable to do. God longs to bless us as his people, but we are very prone to mishandle his blessings and to try to get hold of them in the wrong way. And so this chapter, I think, is a little bit like a reconnaissance drone flying over a battlefield. It is there to help us know our enemy, to warn us of the dangers of faithlessness in the battle to be God's people and to enjoy God's blessings. There are six scenes in the soap opera. Each scene features two members of the family. We're going to look at five lessons from those six scenes. Um, a word of warning as we begin. The second lesson has five subpoints. All the others are a lot shorter. Okay. First of all, scene one, a lack of spiritual vision. A lack of spiritual vision. Verse 34 to verse 4. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Rebekah and Isaac. Now this is exactly what Abraham had made sure didn't happen for Isaac. But now Esau has married women from these godless tribes around them. And so no wonder they are not the most welcome daughters-in-law. But Esau has always been Isaac's favourite son. Do you remember that from last chapter? And so not even his faithless choice of wives can disqualify him from his father's blessing. Isaac's failing physical sight, verse 1, is matched by his failing spiritual sight, his lack of spiritual vision. Verse 3. Isaac said, I am now an old man. And don't know the day of my death. Now then get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. I wonder if even that little phrase at the very end of verse 4 is meant to put us on edge. He says, my blessing. It's not his blessing, is it? It's God's blessing. It sounds suspiciously like he is making this whole thing all about himself. And so what does he do? He doesn't pray. He doesn't talk about the Lord. He simply orders a delivery order 
and says, right, it's my time to pass on my blessing to my son, my favourite son. And perhaps a telltale, a telltale sign of spiritual short-sightedness in our lives is when we start to think of the gospel and all the blessings of the gospel as somehow belonging to us, not God. And so maybe we imagine that we can overlook spiritual warning signs in our lives, a little bit like Isaac overlooks these Hittite women in Jacob's. Even if we've been believers a long time, Isaac's been a believer a long time, we must never presume on 2020 spiritual vision. We always need to think, how can God be opening my eyes more to see things spiritually and wisely as they really are? I wonder if that is a prayer that we regularly pray for ourselves, a prayer that we pray for our church. Here, for example, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That is a good prayer to pray for spiritual vision as a remedy to losing spiritual sights like Isaac seems to be doing. Scene one, a lack of spiritual vision. Scene two, five subpoints here, a tactical guide to temptation. Tactical guide to temptation, verses five to 17. Now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Her entry into the story begins on an ominous note. Do you remember chapter 18? God visits Abraham with two angels to tell Abraham about the blessing and we're told, now Sarah was listening in her tent. And as God announced the blessing upon Abraham, Sarah laughed to herself. She thought, what a joke. That is never going to happen. Sarah was faithless in that moment and her faithlessness was exposed. And here is Rebecca, also about to be faithless. Because she has known since the boys, the twins, were in her womb that God's plan was to make Jacob first and Esau second. But Rebecca is not prepared to allow God's plan to come about in God's way. She's going to take matters into her own hands. And she does that with five tactics of temptation. The first is secrecy. Secrecy. Verse 6. Rebecca said to her son Jacob, look, I overheard your father say. Rebecca knows something Jacob doesn't know, and immediately Jacob is all ears. And I think the same tactic is there for us today as Christians. Someone may say to us, well, we have accessed this higher level of spiritual knowledge, and if only you can access that higher level of spiritual knowledge too, then you'll really make it as a Christian. Or maybe someone will say to us, well, the Bible has always been understood in this way, but now we understand it this way, in terms of morality, for example. That's the way to enjoy God's blessing, the secret knowledge. But do you remember the serpent in the garden? What did the serpent say to Eve? He said, did God really say? He suggested that he knew more than God and he drew Eve into his secret confidence. And Rebecca's first move is tragically similar. We need to beware that tactic of secrecy. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, Timothy, God, what has been entrusted to your care, that's the gospel, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, secret knowledge. 
which some have professed and in so doing have departed the faith. Tactic number one, secrecy. Tactic number two, urgency. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Verse eight. So Rebecca is saying to Jacob, the clock is ticking, Jacob. Esau has gone hunting. If you want to make the most of this opportunity, you've got to do it now. And temptation still urges us to act without patient faith today. Think, for example, James chapter 1. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. How much easier it is to jump to conclusions, to lash out with our words. But it may not be that temptation and a Sorry, it may not be that a short fuse and a sharp tongue is our particular temptation. We may be more likely, when things are not going our way, to immediately start grumbling. Or maybe we immediately and unthinkably bulldoze people. Or we just slip into a passive-aggressive mode to get what we want. We think, I've got to do it now to get what I want, to get the blessing now. Many ways in which urgency accompanies temptation. And how much better to patiently seek God's will, even when it doesn't look like it's worth it, even when it looks like it's going to be hard. Because patient perseverance is the way to get God's blessing. Again, James says this in chapter 1 of his letter. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, having stood the temptation, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Secrets, secrecy, urgency. Third, conspiracy. Verse 9. Go out to the flock and prepare me two choice young goats so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way you, he likes it. Then you take it to your father to eat. Rebecca is essentially saying to Jacob, hey, come on, we're in this together. And temptation often works like that today, doesn't it? Sin is personal. But sin is so much easier to justify if I'm sliding into it with somebody else. Maybe it's in a church. Maybe a church where, I don't know, power is misused and abused. But no one says anything because that's just the way things are done around here. Or maybe it's amongst a group of Christians where uh, drinking too much or swearing is just done and no one says anything because it's just the way things happen. Or maybe it's amongst Christians a kind of a middle-class idolatry of wealth or pleasure or, le or leisure. And it's just never really addressed because we don't want to offend anybody. We, we do experience temptation with our friends who are not following Jesus, friends or family who are not Christians. But conspiracy amongst believers is just as dangerous, if not more so, perhaps. And Rebecca's next two tactics are especially high-risk for spiritual people, we've seen secrecy, urgency, conspiracy, false, false piety. False piety, verse 13, his mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me, just do what I say. So Jacob begins to think to himself, well, if this goes wrong, then I'm going to get cursed instead of blessed. He's not bothered about the plan, he's bothered about being found out. But Rebecca says, don't worry, I'll take the blame if things start to unravel. And what does she do? She dresses things up in spiritual language. She presumes that somehow she could get one up on God. And maybe we do the same sort of thing today. We assume that it's God's job to forgive me. So if I 
Sin, well, it doesn't matter. God's going to forgive me. Or maybe we can avoid God's justice by some sort of clever religious manoeuvring in our life. And all such tactics are doomed to fail. False piety, fourth. Fifth, God sees through it all. Hypocrisy. Verse 16. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goat skins. Well, does that remind you of anything? Back in the Garden of Eden, God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness with animal skins. And now Rebecca is kind of trying to do the same thing. She's covering up Jacob's identity with goat skins. And still today, aren't we often tempted to pretend to be something we're not? We hide our true self from others. We put on a show, we wear a mask. But there's no pulling the wool over God's eyes, is there? And so we need to be totally honest with him in our own prayers, uh, with close Christian friends, confessing our sins, seeking forgiveness, asking for God's grace to go again. Maybe you can think of many other tactics of temptation. I'm sure there are. But all of these seem to come out of this little encounter between Rebecca and Jacob. Secrecy, urgency, conspiracy, false piety, hypocrisy. Maybe it's just worth thinking. Is there one of those or a couple of those that are prone to get me? Well, if we don't take those things seriously, we might find ourselves falling into the tragedy of scene three. Scene three, verses 18 to 29. A litany of lies. A litany of lies. Isaac is not expecting the Deliveroo driver to arrive so soon. And Jacob responds with his, the first of uh, four or five lies. Lies one and two, verse 19. I am Esau, your son. I have done as you told me. Well, he's not Esau and he hasn't gone hunting. So there's two lies. And he's an excellent hunter, Esau. But surely he's not so good that he caught its prey this quickly. And so, and so Isaac says, how come you've managed so quickly? And lie three. Verse 20, the Lord your God gave me success. He said, surely that is the low point in the conversation. Isaac, though, he's still not sure the suspense builds and nearer and nearer Jacob comes to Isaac. And we're there thinking, surely Isaac is going to spot the difference. I mean, we all know that, that Esau is Mr. Harry, don't we? But Jacob is ready with lie number four. Are you really my son, Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. But there's still one more moment of suspense. As the father says to the son, come here and kiss me, my son. And we think, surely, surely Isaac is going to clock it at this point. And Jacob's heartbeat is going like this as he's thinking, I don't want to get too close. He's going to spot me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, oh, the smell of my son. It's like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Maybe for us it's like the smell of freshly mown grass or something like that. Isaac's like, oh, it's my son. He smells of soil. And all of his lingering doubts are dismissed and he has been thoroughly duped and he unwittingly passes on God's blessing. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you. <coughs> And peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. 
So first he says, agricultural fertility. That is what Isaac himself has received from the Lord, and that is what he prays that his son would receive as well. Second, political supremacy. Just as Isaac has been honoured by the nations. You remember Abimelech in the previous chapter making a, a, a treaty with him. He's praying that Jacob would be honoured by the nations as well. And finally, he repeats almost word for word the blessing that God said to Abraham at the very beginning of the story, chapter 12. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Jacob has got the blessing, but he got it by lying. He even committed blasphemy along the way. Do you notice that, verse 20? It is a very sorry tale, and there's no way we're meant to read this chapter and think, well, if only I was a little bit more like Jacob. And yet, God is at work. God is at work behind the scenes to bring blessing to the world through this sinful family all the way to Jesus. It's the way God has always worked. Think of Jesus' enemies accusing him of lying, accusing him of being a blasphemer. Jesus never lied. Jesus did not blaspheme. And yet they used those lies to get him on the cross. Think of Caiaphas, the high priest, who said it's better that one man die for the nation than the whole nation perish. And John, the gospel writer, says he spoke more than he knew. And here is Isaac speaking more than he knew as well, because Jacob will be blessed. Or think about what Peter said to the crowds when he preached about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He said, now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. They acted in ignorance, but God was bringing his plan about. Isaac acts in ignorance, God is bringing his plan about. See, we, we may prove faithless, just like Jacob did, but there is no amount of faithlessness, no amount of sin that can undo God's blessing, plan to bless the world. And so we don't admire Jacob, but we do worship God who promises to bless us despite our own long litanies of lies and sin. God brings blessing instead of curse, even to deceitful sinners like you and me. What a wonderfully gracious God we have. But although God is full of grace to the undeserving, he is equally stern in his judgments towards the unrepentant. Scene four. A bitter cry of regret. Verses 30 to 41. Isaac realises too late that he has been taken for a fool. Verse 33. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. But it's too late for anyone to turn the clock back. And the son, do you remember Esau, he brought grief to his parents through his marriages to these Hittite women. Well, now it's his turn to get his own dose of bitterness. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to him, bless me, me too, my father. Now, just before we feel too sorry for Esau, the victim of Jacob's deception, let's not forget that Esau has got a rather loose hold on the truth himself. So look at verse 36. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. But do you remember why Jacob or how Jacob took Esau's birthright? Esau sold it to him for a bowl of lentil soup. 
Esau preferred the immediate satisfaction of getting his stomach filled than the long-term privilege of the inheritance rights of the older son. And his chickens are coming home to roost. No amount of begging is going to change things now. Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing for me, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. But Isaac has nothing to give Jacob, apart from basically like a negative version of what he gave, sorry, nothing to give Esau, rather than like a negative version of what he gave to, to Jacob. And so Esau has got nothing left to do but to plot revenge. Verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Does that remind you of anyone? Any other brother in the story so far? Cain was consumed with jealousy, wasn't he? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice, not his own. And now Esau is dreaming of killing his brother. He has begged and pleaded, but there's no way out. And his bitter cry of regret continues to warn us today. Let me read to you from Hebrews 11. Verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. We looked at that a couple of chapters ago. Verse 17, afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. He couldn't change what he had done. See, God is full of mercy and grace, but there comes a point where if we will not repent, then we put ourselves beyond the scope of God's blessing. We cannot change what we have done. Esau's tears warn us sternly not to follow in his steps. Or as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. It is no use simply being sorry for the consequences of sin. It is no use only ever claiming to be the victim of somebody else's sin. We may regret where sin has led us. We may truly be a victim in one way or another. But each and every one of us, we still need to repent. We still need to actively own our own sin. We still need to turn from it. We still need to trust God to forgive us. If not, all that is left is that bitter cry of regret. And I wonder if that is the cliffhanger in the final two scenes of this tragic family soap opera. Uh, scenes five and six together, a tragic reversal of grace. Tragic reversal of grace. So once again, Rebecca proves herself to be a quick thinker. She hears of Esau plot. She comes up with another plan. She says, verse 43, Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. Now, I'm sure this makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to run away from a murderous brother. But in a way, Rebecca and Jacob are putting God's plan to bless the world into reverse gear. Do you remember where Abraham's journey started? It started in Haran. He heard God's blessing in Haran, and God said to him, leave this place and go to the land that I will show you, where I will bless you. So Abraham gets up and he goes. And now here is 
Rebecca, saying to Abraham's grandson, go back. Go back the way you've come. Go into exile. And Rebecca thinks it'll just be a few days, a little while. But it ends up being 20 years before Jacob comes home. And when he does, I'm not even sure Rebecca is there to greet him. Because this is basically the last time we meet her in the story. Verse 46, she says, my life will not be worth living. And I wonder if our narrator almost agrees with her. Now, later on in the story, we discover that she is buried with Isaac and Abraham and Sarah. But unlike lots of the big characters of this story, we're never told that she actually dies. We are told that her nurse dies, but not her. And I wonder if our narrator is basically saying to us, I kind of want to write her out of the story because she was so faithless. She makes it to the end, buried with Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. But only just, it seems to me. So may we, by God's grace, do better than that. Faithlessness in our own lives, in our churches, in a Christian nation, it can all kind of put God's plan to bless the world into reverse gear. And so we need to keep on examining our hearts, thinking, are there any parts of my life where I lack spiritual vision? Am I succumbing in any place to the tactics of temptation? Are my lives, is my life marked too much by lying instead of truth? Do I merely regret my sin, or am I repentant of it? Let's thank God that, he, that, that we cannot, though, ultimately derail his plan to bless the world. Because God works through our sinfulness, through the sinfulness of human beings, to bring his salvation through Isaac's great descendant, Jesus Christ. One last verse to read. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. If we are faithless, like these characters in this story, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Thank God for that. Should we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in humility this morning and sorrow for our sins, for the many ways in which we um, follow in the footsteps of Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau, and we're sorry, and we pray that you would give us repentant hearts. We pray that you would help us, Father God, to believe and to trust in your grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.